So tonight I want to speak about the third of the five spiritual faculties, so the five uh, activities of mind that are most predominant or most responsible for the development of our awareness and our understanding. And I've spoken of the first two, which are uh, faith or trusting, which is the causal condition for the arising or arousing of energy or effort, the second. And the making of effort in this tradition of practice leads to momentary mindfulness. Um, Mindfulness is, as we've heard, uh, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And the more continuity, or the more frequently we're able to remember and recognize the present moment experience, the more stable the mind becomes. It's less jerked around, it's less uh, falls into uh, habitual uh, traps of the mind, uh, bad habits of the mind, if you will. And uh, when the mind is stable and less uh, uh, less labile, if you will, then when the mind is stable, it sees. It sees each moment's experience more more clearly, more steadily, uh, and it sees into, it sees into each moment's experience to a greater depth, if you would, if you understand it that way. And so we understand more. It is like, as mindfulness grows, or as awareness grows, the mind becomes collected. And the collected mind is like a powerful magnifying lens. And if you look at anything through a magnifying lens, you see more details of what it is that you're looking at. And through the clarity of the seeing and through the the seeing more details, you understand, you can grow to understand more accurately with more uh, honesty or more clearly what it is that you're actually looking at. With that increased knowledge or wisdom or understanding, then we feel more faith, we feel more trust, we feel more urgency to practice, and gradually these five factors, as I've mentioned, grow cyclically, uh, gradually, and eventually they mature and are brought into balance. And they're brought into balance by mindfulness. Mindfulness is the, the factor which sees when we're out of balance. It sees the moment as it is. And if there's some imbalance in our faculties, if we have a little too much faith and not enough wisdom, then we're out of balance. We may be kind of all gooey, gooey, devotional with no common sense. Okay? So then we're out of balance. So we may be really book smart, with that kind of wisdom, but no <coughs> trust to actually do the practice. Again, out of balance. Or we may be more energetic and really striving and really being a spiritual athlete. We're really just trying to do the practice. And there's not enough tranquility to actually open, open the mind. Or if you get too tranquil and too stable and too calm, you just kind of fall into a what we call sinking mind. So it's mindfulness that's going to recognize when any of the other four factors are out of balance and it's going to bring them into balance just by recognizing, oh, they're out of balance, will automatically uh, make that adjustment to greater balance. So in speaking about these five faculties, remember that they're the, they're the guides, they're the... the the guidelines of, and they guide the unfolding of our awareness and understanding. And I offer these teachings so that you can begin to monitor your own practice. And after you leave the retreat and you're on your own, you'll have a, a template, a series of lenses to look through. You can look through, look at your practice through the lens of these five faculties and see where you're to where you're deficient, whether they're in balance or out of balance. And in this way, with, with some experience, you'll begin to 
monitor your own practice to know what's needed. So mindfulness. Now, why throughout this retreat, when I use the word mindfulness or awareness, I'm using them synonymously. You know, sometimes I'll say mindfulness, sometimes I'll say awareness, but I mean the same thing. This activity of being aware that we're, that we're cultivating. But tonight I'm going to use the word mindfulness differently. Awareness is the activity of these five factors. When they're developed and brought into balance, then awareness is happening. But mindfulness is one factor in this awareness. So tonight I'm speaking about mindfulness as a mental factor rather than the process of awareness. So there's going to be some unique uh, attributes to this mental factor, mindfulness, which is, which is available or is used in the process of being aware. You'll see as I go along. So what is mindfulness? Well, it is this natural activity of the mind of knowing the present moment. It's not like we don't know that. Uh, we know the present moment to a degree. But we forget also. As you know, we get lost in our uh, narratives, our internal monologues. And we're often not present for what's actually happening. So in a moment of mindfulness, there are two things happening, two elements. There's what is being known, and there's the knowing of it. If there's no object to be known, <coughs> there can be no awareness. There can be no mindfulness. Mindfulness always needs an object, something to know. And in, you know, some of you have tried different meditation practices. You know, sometimes you do mantra or visualization, or you do loving kindness, or you do breath meditation, where you use a single object, like a visualization or sound or whatever. And again, to develop this kind of what's called samatha or a concentration practice, you actually have to be mindful. Because mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment. And when the present moment that you've chosen to be mindful of is the mantra, or the visualization, or uh, the feeling of loving kindness, for example, that's what you remember to recognize in that moment. So it's mindfulness that leads to the collectedness or the concentration of the mind. So sometimes we... You know, people talk about concentration as if it was something very different than mindfulness. Well, it is different in one sense, and I'll be speaking more about uh, samadhi or concentration. But we should understand that collectedness of mind occurs with the continuity or the frequency of moments of mindfulness. So if we're, if we're mindful moment after moment, mind quite naturally gets collected. And what that means is the, the mind gets collected and it's not so dispersed. You know, it's not fragmented. It's not going off into all these thoughts and comments and judgments about what's going on. It's just staying present with what is going on. So, you know, when I, years ago when I first started teaching, for many years I taught the um, three-month retreat at uh, the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And the three-month retreat starts would start in mid-September and it would end uh, ten days before Christmas. So I'd be away from home for those three months and I'd go home and ten month, ten, ten days before Christmas the mailbox was stuffed with catalogs. Well, it wasn't stuffed. Somebody had gotten them out and they were, they were stacked up. And so I, I'd get home, to, you know, and there would be, you know, 120 catalogs. Not that I buy a lot of stuff, but people, people were sending stuff. So here is, uh, you know, 100 catalogs, 110, <coughs> a lot of catalogs. And, you know, you can't help but kind of look through just, you know, 
And what, what happens when you actually look through a catalog? You know, you pick up this book of things that you've never needed until now. And then you look on the first page, and there's five or six things, and your mind scans five or six things that are saying, yes, no, 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 no. Then it goes to the next page, another five or six things. No, 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 maybe. Fold, fold over that corner of the page. <laughs> next page. Yes, no, 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 no. Maybe, or fold over that corner of the page for easy reference later, you know. And so, after you get through 60 pages of, you know, five per page, you know, you've looked at 300 things, and a little bit of your attention and mind has stuck on every one of them. By the end of the catalog, or several catalogs, your mind is so dispersed, so fragmented, so uncollected, and it's so uncomfortable that you buy something just to feel good. (laughs) That's what happens. You know, if we're not collecting the mind, the mind is getting very dispersed. It's just going out to all kinds of sights, sounds, thoughts, imaginations, memories, plans, all all kinds of things. So, being mindful collects the mind in this moment to be right here, in the next moment to be right here, in the next moment to be right here. And when we do that with some continuity, then the mind doesn't get dispersed. And the powerful mind, the, the mind that's collected, becomes very powerful. It really sees into what it is it's looking at. So concentration, or collectedness of mind, or samadhi, is a function of the continuity of mindfulness. The more continuous the mindfulness, the more collected the mind. So that's the relationship between, well, mindfulness and concentration, if you will. We say that mindfulness is a bare attention it is the ability to attend to an experience without any comment, without any judgment, without any filters, without any expectation. It's just, it's bare of any agenda or any preference. And so, when it's unencumbered like that, the mind is accompanied by, or mindfulness is accompanied by this other factor of mind, the quality of mind called. Ujukata. Ujukata is means straightness of mind. Straightness of mind, uh, when it arises with any strength or with any continuity of mindfulness, prevents. It, it keeps the mind straight. The mind going straight. The mind doesn't go to get to something. And when you speak from a from a straight mind, you just speak straight and clear to the point. It's not kind of meandering around so much. And in mindfulness practice, what Ujukata does is it prevents you from being deceptive. You can no longer deceive yourself. It's a kind of, it's a quality that comes with, with uh, non-delusion. But it's, it's, you can't, you can't pretend otherwise. You can't deceive yourself. You see it as it is and painful or pleasant, it doesn't matter, like it or not, you see it as it is. So this straightness of mind really protects us from uh, spinning uh, stories about what we're experiencing that are just, are just fantasies or figments of our imagination or hopeful or expectations or other than what it is. So this uh, mindfulness, this bare attention, this ability to um, remember to recognize the present moment involves a balance between subjectively knowing or experiencing the moment while objectively being able to recognize it. So we're not so entangled in the moment subjectively that we have no objectivity and we're not so objective that we're kind of cut off from or distant from. But there's this balance of being a feeling into the experience and being able to objectively name it, recognize it. So this is the capacity of mindfulness. And I would say that even though our a lot of our conditioning or training in school and in our careers is around problem solving, and, we, and we're good at that, we, we, we often ask the question, why? Why is this this way? Or how, how is it happening this way? Why, 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 why? And if we can solve problems by answering the question why, then 
we don't make that mistake again. But mindfulness isn't, doesn't answer the question why. Mindfulness answers the question what. So if you, if you want to cultivate mindfulness, you ask the question, well, what is this? What is, what is this moment's experience? What, what is this? What is this? What is this? Each moment. And if you only allow yourself a single word answer, it will prevent you from just proliferating explanations and justifications and rationalizations. And you just see, this is the way it is. So I sometimes encourage people to give themselves just one word to identify what it is they're aware of in each moment. So that we're not justifying and explaining. So we could say that mindfulness answers the question what without embellishment, without any kind of uh, explanation or uh, justification, rationalization. Those activities come with the development of perception and the development of wisdom or delusion. But mindfulness itself just sees. Mindfulness just sees. It doesn't understand. Mindfulness just sees as a mental factor. Now, what makes mindfulness so hard or so difficult? Why, why can't we just say, mind, be mindful? Well, you can't. <laughs> you can say that, but it doesn't happen. Because, well, the habits of our mind are so ubiquitous, so strong, so deeply conditioned. Our habits of worry and commenting and justifying and explaining and figuring out and narrating, this is me, you know, everything that you've ever experienced has been woven into the tapestry of this narrative of me. Everything. And that takes up all your, all your disk space. That's, that's all the free, free space you have. And so when we, when we ask the mind to recognize what, remember to recognize what's going on, it can't remember. It doesn't remember. And so the function of mindfulness, the function of mindfulness in the whole scheme of awareness is to remember. That's what it does. That's its function, is to remember, to recognize. And, you know, it's hard because the habits of mind are so familiar to us and our sense of ourself that is constructed by this narrative has been so, well, it's been eternal since we, since we, since we started it. It's never been broken, this, this monologue that we have going on about ourselves. And it's really hard to drop in a seed of stop the story, take a look. But that's what remembering does. Remember, oh, to recognize this moment, rather than just weave this moment into the narrative of my life. So the function of mindfulness is to remember, not forget, to not forget. And as Joseph Goldstein has acknowledged, you know, it's easy to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. Utejaniya says something similar. He says, it's easy to be mindful, but it's difficult to remember to be mindful continuously. We might have a moment, and then we space it, forget When I first started practicing with Upandita in 1984, I was, you know, as I mentioned, I was doing a retreat. I don't know if I mentioned this to this group, but... I was struggling. I had a hard time. Uh, my, I'd only been practicing eight years, and I was not very, not very uh, savvy. I was a really slow learner. But I was doing the best I could, trying hard. Had to report every day, and the person that I was following in the reporting sequence every day was this young woman who was new to practice and was doing really well. She had really good mindfulness. So one day, I'm standing in the hallway. You know, and the doors open, and I can, you know, I'm standing from here to there away, and I can hear her talking excitedly about her practice, reporting excitedly to Vandita about her practice, how she's remembering her past lives and what she was doing in her past lives and what was going on. And I was going, past lives? <laughs> Where's the breath? <laughs> you know, I was just like, you know, she came kind of floating out of the room, down, down the hallway, kind of, you know, <laughs> and it was my turn to go in, so I, I go in. <laughs> 
I go in and you know I, I, I do my bows and you know just out of utter frustration and kind of like what chagrin and what, what am I what are we doing here? I said, what, what, are we, what are we doing here anyway? We're supposed to be remembering our past lives or something? And one day he was not flustered at all. He said, no, remembering this life. <laughs> oh. That's it. Just remembering this present moment of life. That, that's mindfulness. Nevertheless, I survived. <laughs> and you know, gradually, and you'll see even as we go along in the course of a seven-day retreat like this, you'll see that, oh, our ability to remember, to recognize for the moment, <coughs> increases gradually, slowly, gradually. It's just not possible to cultivate a new habit that quickly. And so, be patient and persevering. Be patient with the habits of the mind of not remembering, and be persevering in your intent, your intention, your aspiration, to remember, to recognize for the moment. So this is the balance. You know, we'll find ourselves caught in the middle of being patient with habits and being persistent with persevering with our aspiration. It's helpful to know what are the conditions that give rise to mindfulness. So I want to speak a little bit about the proximate causes of mindfulness. Because in this understanding of the mind, you know, things happen due to causes and conditions. Things arise. They don't arise accidentally. They don't arise mistakenly. There's no mistake. Things arise due to causes and conditions. When the causes and the conditions are there, then these experiences of the mind will arise. It's, it's, it's not your fault. You can't make it happen. You can't make it not happen. If the conditions are right, it'll happen. So what is it that gives rise to a moment of mindfulness? What is the proximate cause for mindfulness? Well, as I mentioned earlier, for there to be mindfulness, there has to be an object. And the most obvious and tangible object that we attend to or recognize is experiences of the body. Our posture, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, or the actual sensorial feeling of breathing, moving, just sitting, and as you know, physical physicality is very uh, tangible, it's very discreet in location, it has a, a very distinctive flavor, you know, hardness, tightness, tension, vibrating, pulsing, heat, coolness, and it lasts for a specific duration of time. You know, usually they, you know, you can see that, oh, this happens, this happens, this happens. Sometimes things seem to linger, like pain, but if you get close to it, you'll see the pain is pulsing on and off. It's not just a steady, steady state. So we use the body a lot to, um, as an object, to cultivate the continuity of mindfulness. But also, the mind. You know, the body is not the only thing that we're paying attention to because we have thoughts, we have feelings, we have emotions, we have pleasant and unpleasant mental states, we have uh, beliefs, thoughts, memories, plans, our whole array of cognitive activities, rehearsing, liking, commenting, figuring out, explaining, rationalizing, analyzing. No wonder we don't have any free time. <laughs> you know, and while they, these activities may not be so clear to you yet, they will. As you, if you keep practicing, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll get familiar, or as you practice, you become more familiar with the activities of mind that, that you most uh, cultivate habitually, un, unconsciously, really. And you just start noticing, oh, here I am again, you know, figuring out something I don't need to figure out, explaining something to somebody that doesn't even exist. You know, rehearsing for something that's never going to happen. Planning. If we, had to, if we had to live out all the plans we've made, we, we would have to live to be hundreds of years old. All the time, all during which we'd be making plans for another few hundred years. And yet, we just, we still do it. Right? Until we notice it. And as soon as we notice, oh, planning's going on. What am, I don't need to be planning now. I sometimes tell the story of 
my first retreat. I'd, when I went to university, I studied uh, engineering. Back in the days when there was no handheld computers and all the math was done with slide rules and a lot of longhand math. So I took a lot of math courses and was good at math. It just could really crunch numbers in the head and uh, with a slide rule. So when I went to my first retreat a few years after college, you know, when my mind wandered away into its habits, it wandered off into mathematical calculations. So I'd be sitting there, you know, in, in meditation hall, let's see, 40 feet wide, 60 feet long, 20 feet tall, and I said, how many cubic feet is that? And I said, you know, and I, I'd kind of catch my mind wandering in this calculation, and I'd go, do I have to be doing this right now? <laughs> but it's a habit of mind. We, we continue to do what our habit of mind is until you notice it. And then as soon as you notice it, you can make, you have a choice. I can keep doing this useless calculation, or I can just, you know, drop, pull the plug. But that's what we discover. That we have these habits of mind that keep ourselves totally occupied, keep our minds so busy, we can't pay attention to the present moment. So identifying those activities of mind, those habits of mind that use up all our disk space is essential to learning how to calm down the mind, learning how to awaken to what's actually going on in here. And then there's, you know, all the hindrances, you know, the challenges like sleepiness, restlessness, desire, aversion, doubt. There's all the wholesome states of mind like joy, happiness, love, contentment, equanimity. There's lots of, well, there's lots of activities, mental and physical activities that can be and will eventually become the object that is being known by mindfulness. So, as we get clear in identifying these objects, it is uh, a support for the continuity of mindfulness. The second cause, or a second, another cause for uh, the arising of uh, mindfulness is strong perception. Perception is another mental factor. It is the activity of clearly recognizing the uniqueness or the distinctiveness of an experience. So we say that perception is the clear recognition of the unique nature of this experience. So when we feel heat in the body, we feel heat somewhere in, in the body, heat has a distinctive feel to it. Very different than coolness or pressure or vibrating or aching. And we can, we can clearly distinguish that. If, if the mind lands on it, we can, we can taste the feeling of heat. Or we can, ta- I say, taste with the mind. The mind can know, can feel into, and just identify, oh, this is heat. And gradually we begin to identify a whole range of physical uh, experiences, but we also clearly identify the mental activities. But it's the clarity of the perception that supports the continuity of mindfulness. Now sometimes, and someone asked a question about this earlier in the retreat, what is the value, or is there any value in naming or labeling your experience? And I commented then that you can. It's a tool, it's a technique for uh, clarifying perception. In fact, if you can label if you can name your experience, you clearly have a clear perception of it. And I, did, I was reviewing some research that, about this uh, this afternoon. And in um, 2007, there was a uh, research study uh, written up uh, by the UCLA psychologist Matthew Lieberman, where he identified and confirmed through testing that naming the emotions, naming your emotions, is the best way to manage them. And brain scans, did some brain scans to show that putting negative emotions into words calms the most the emotional center of the brain. So when you're upset, if you can name that upsetness, you're less upset. Because the activity of naming operates a different operates in a different section of the mind, taking energy away from the emotional section of the mind. 
And what they found was that meditators who label their negative emotions, their brain scans were starkly different than non-meditators, meaning there was greater activity in the area associated with thinking in words about emotional experiences and a decrease in the activity of emotional processing. So labeling, naming your experience, is well, a great way to uh, tame or to begin to manage and to not be so easily overwhelmed by well, you know, these torments that, that flood the mind periodically, today, every day. So developing this clear perception, naming or labeling, is a technique for sharpening perception. Sharp perception, clear perception, is a proximate cause for the continuity of mindfulness. As or Tejaniya acknowledges, the only difference between those who practice and those who don't those who practice are aware of themselves, recognizing their own experience. That's the only difference. If you practice or don't practice, you still have the experience, but those who practice are able to recognize and name their experience. One further um, proximate cause for uh, mindfulness is momentum. If there's a moment of mindfulness with clear perception now, it is a support for the continuity of another moment of mindfulness in the next moment. <clears throat> so that's why we stress not only just clear perception and clear object, but continuity. The more continuous you can be, well, the more continuous you'll be. Or, I should say, the clearer your mindfulness will become. Okay, so those are the proximate causes that give rise to um, mindfulness. Once mindfulness serves the function of remembering. It serves the function of remembering. The proximate causes give rise to a moment of mindfulness. And mindfulness manifests in our life. How? Mindfulness, the function is to remember. The proximate cause is clear perception, object, and continuity. But it manifests, we know we're mindful, when the mind is able to look at and observe what the experience is. You know, a lot of, a lot of us have read Dharma books, have learned a lot about the Dharma, about practice, meditation, about Buddhism, and other spiritual traditions, and we know a lot from study. And in fact, that kind of studying used to be the way of education up until you know, the mid-1800s. still that way over in Burma, actually. Just wrote memorization. Read what everybody else has written, learn it, then you're educated. Until this fellow, Louis Agassi, a Swiss naturalist, saw that that was limited. And he made his name and fame in studying glaciers. You know those fast-moving ice flows in the mountains that... Well, they're fast-moving now. They weren't then. But he, his, his, his method of teaching was to study nature rather than books. Not to the exclusion of books, but in addition to books. And so his way of teaching was to observe events in nature until there was an understanding that was new, that came from that observation. And... Just by observing glaciers, he wrote about glaciers, and it was phenomenal, phenomenally successful, popular book, actually, you know, back in the mid-1800s. So he came to America on a tour, a speaking tour, and everywhere he went, giving talks about glaciers, or actually talks about studying nature, uh, it was wildly popular. And uh, Harvard University wanted him to be a professor, invited him to come be a professor, he agreed, he came, and a lot of graduate students wanted him as their advisor. So there was something of a competition to uh, have Agassi select them as one of his students. So it, was, it, was, it involved the matter of an interview. So when the initial interview was at an end, and Agassi asked the question, asked the student when he or she would like to begin, the correct answer was now whereupon the student was immediately presented with a dead fish. 
are usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master, Agassiz, from one of the wide-mouthed jars that had lined, that lined his shelves of his office. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he or she was told to look at the fish, and whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. <laughs> Samuel Scudder was one of those students, and he described that experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. When he writes, in ten minutes... I had seen all that could be seen of that fish. Half an hour passed. An hour. Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face. Ghastly. I looked at it from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field of study. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. Samuel continues writing, I was peeped. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and I discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and when towards its close the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not. But I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. <laughs> he says, the fish, he announced to Louis Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Ah, of course, of course, Agassiz exclaimed, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value which he could not buy, and with which he could not part. We have this fish, folks. <laughs> Here it is. You know, and it's not even in a tin pan. It's still alive. It's this body and mind. And if we had Louis Agassiz for a teacher, he'd be a great mindless coach. Because look, just look, just observe, just... Look at what you've seen over and over and over again until you understand it differently. Until you really see what's there. This is, this is the, how mindfulness manifests as the ability to observe. And that's what we're learning. How to observe. And as I've acknowledged, a lot of what we observe is very familiar, recurring, superficial, mundane, ordinary, nothing special events, experiences. Standing, sitting, breathing, you know, stepping, turning a doorknob, brushing your teeth. I mean, it, right? It, what's, so, what's so spiritual about that? It's that we don't see. We don't see clearly what's going on. We're lost in our thoughts. We don't, we're not, we, don't, we don't understand. And most of the time, we don't, we're not really present for what's going on. So, this is the, how mindfulness manifests. Observing, facing the object, facing the present moment's experience, and looking, just looking over and over again, without assuming that we know what's going on. And sometimes I like to suggest, whatever you think you know about yourself, and you assume is true, whether it's the amount of sleep you need, the amount of food you need, the amount of anything, it's not true. How do I know? How will you know if it's true? You need that amount of sleep. You need that. You won't know until you test yourself. Until you really check it out. Direct observation. You can't read it in a book. You aren't in any book. It's unique to you. So this observing is really, a lot of it is learning how to feel your way into the present moment. Especially with I mean, sensations. You know, we can feel them. 
but the mind too, feeling our way into, what does it feel like, this activity of rehearsing, this activity of explaining, this activity of figuring out, this activity of being angry, irritated, frustrated, disappointed. How are we going to know? You can't think about it. You can think about it, but that, that's not observing it. That's thinking about what you think about it. It's how do you feel your way into it? So really, this is what we're doing, learning how to observe through opening to and allowing and being interested in and feeling our way into the present moment. And when we do that, you know, as I acknowledged, it is that kind of awareness, that kind of attention is accompanied by straightness of mind. We don't put any spin on it. We don't put on any preference. We see it as it is. We don't, we don't kind of squirrely kind of make it like we want it to be. It's like we see it as it is. Whereas there's this objective recognition of our subjective experience. And for this, we need, to be able to do this, we need right attitude. I've talked about right attitude in practice and right uh, intention. How to approach a practice. So I want to talk about the qualities of attitude of mind that are part and parcel of the activity of being mindful, that are embedded in the observing mind. You know, here's the object, here's the observing. What are the attitudes of this mind that are most supportive of continuity of awareness? Because as Sanitation acknowledges, right attitude, correct attitude, skillful attitude of mind, allows you to accept and acknowledge and observe whatever's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and to do so in a relaxed, alert way. Right attitude. So there are three arenas of right attitude, or right thought. Now right thought is the second wisdom factor of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, the wisdom factors. Right view and right thought. Right thought, right intention. So the three kinds of right thoughts, so the three kinds of right intentions, skillful intentions that the Buddha identified as the second wisdom factor of the Noble Eightfold Path are thoughts of metta, thoughts of renunciation, and thoughts of harmlessness or compassion. Now, it's not so much that we need thoughts of metta in doing our practice, but we need an attitude of metta. Metta is loving-kindness. We need an attitude. Some people have asked, well, I'm not going to teach loving-kindness here. No, I'm not going to teach phrases and a kind of formal loving-kindness practice. But to the extent that we cultivate an open, receptive, willing, interested, allowing, acknowledging, appreciating attitude of mind towards everything that we're experiencing, we're cultivating loving-kindness. Those are the very qualities of a loving heart. And so as we cultivate them in our practice of just mindfulness, mindful awareness, we are displaying, we are manifesting loving-kindness through our approach, our attitude towards practice, and the way we approach every moment's experience. So this goodwill, this uh, love, this open, receptive, interested, allowing, acknowledging, attitudes of mind, overcome any tendency towards aversion, discrimination, disliking. Okay? The second area of uh, thoughts, attitudes of mind, is renunciation, really simplifying, letting go. And this, this addresses our tendency to attach to get identified with, to cling to anything. So the, the attitudes of being relaxed, without expectation, no agenda, no anticipation, no disappointment, uh, without embellishing or indulging. Well, that's letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. In order to actually be with this experience, without any preconception of what it is, or how it should be, or how you want it to be, just to see, oh, this is the way it is. And the third arena of right attitude, right thought, 
is compassion, harmlessness, or doing, doing no harm to yourself or others. And here is where we want to have no judgment, no, no preference for pleasant or unpleasant, no preferring one over the other, but just see things, see things as they are. Not being resistant to, but accepting everything. Not just being tolerant, but really accepting, acknowledging and accepting, oh, this is the way it is. Very different than just putting up with. Okay? So that kind of harmlessness, it's, it's, we're not being harmful to ourselves. We're willing to accept, acknowledge openly everything that we're experiencing in the body, in the mind, in the heart. Now, you know, when I first speak about attitudes of mind, often people have a difficult time understanding what this attitude of mind is. You know, there's the object, there's the knowing of it, and there's attitude of mind. What? Where? What? How? What? What is the attitude of mind? So when I say, or encourage you to check your attitude of mind, what, what do you look for? Where, where, do you, where do you look? You know, well, now, now I know how to do it, so I can see what my attitude of mind is. But it's, it's subtle, they're often subtle. But if you would really like to know what your attitude of mind is, get your phone. No, don't get your phone. But outside of this retreat, get your phone, take a selfie, take a selfie, turn it into an emoji. What is it saying? That's your attitude of mind. Your attitude of mind is written on your face. You know. So what is this attitude of mind? <coughs> Driving. What is this attitude of mind? Indulgence. What is this attitude of mind? Skepticism. What is this attitude of mind? Stink eye. Version. <laughs> what is this attitude of mind? Yeah. Indulging again. Desire. It's easy. Once we learn how to monitor our own face, how to, to kind of get a look, get a glimpse at, oh, what is my face expressing about this experience, about the way I'm practicing, or what, my, what I'm experiencing with practice? So check that out. So these are the ways that mindfulness as a mental factor manifests with observing, with the right attitude, guarding the, uh, guarding the sense doors, feeling into the experience so that we can actually taste it, taste the experience. Now the characteristic of mindfulness, I'm talking about the function is to remember, the approximate cause is clear perception, objects, continuity, the uh, manifestation is through observing, and how do we uh, experience its characteristic? Mindfulness not only observes, and not only feels into, but it comes to know the nature of the experience from the inside, through intimacy. It doesn't just kind of touch the surface of the experience, but it plunges into the experience. So it feels it from the inside. It becomes that intimate with each moment's experience. So what I mean is that the mind is not carried away on a stream of thought about the experience. I like it, I don't like it, this is good, this is bad, this is better than it was before. No, it's just, it just drops into the experience like a rock sinks into a stream. Mindfulness sinks into the experience and feels it from the inside. Not just having a thought at arm's distance about it. Because sometimes, you know, we keep things at a distance because it's scary to feel them. You know, it might be uncomfortable to feel some of these mental states, some of these physical sensations. And so we keep things at a distance, kind of over there. Yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware that this pain over there. I'm aware that I'm, you know, caught up in some you know, emotional drama, but it's over there. That's not being... That's being mindful of concepts and ideas, but not the intimacy of mindfulness for the development of insight. Okay? So, when we're not carried away, not floating away, we plunge, the mindfulness plunges into the object, tastes it from the inside. As Upandita says, life without mindfulness is like food without salt. Kind of there, but kind of bland and insipid. Yeah. So mindfulness has this uh, stick itiveness not attachment stick itiveness but the kind that you know 
toss a you toss a bag of beans on the floor. It doesn't bounce. It doesn't wobble. It doesn't wobble. It doesn't roll around. It lands right there. Direct contact, immediate. So that's what we. That's how we uh, recognize uh, mindfulness in in a moment. It's like it really drops into the experience and tastes it from the inside. Now I've spoken a lot about mindfulness. And here we're developing mindfulness just on a moment-to-moment basis, just to gather knowledge about the nature of this body and mind. You know, just to find out where where we stumble, where what we can open to, what we can't open to, what causes us to suffer, what causes us to be happy. And gradually we acquire this knowledge. But it's not only for this kind of formal practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness is useful throughout our whole life. This, this this experience here being on retreat is like boot camp. You know, it's like twenty four seven developing mindfulness. You know, you don't there's nothing else to do here. You know, you can't find anything to distract yourself, hardly. You know. And uh, so the constant reminder is just just be mindful with whatever you're doing. But it's only so that we can develop these muscles. It's like, you know, when you go to well, when people my age go to the club, we go to the club to do exercise. You know, younger people, they go to the club to socialize, but, you know, people my age go to the club to exercise muscles so that, you know, we can we can have the use of them in our normal life when they're going to carry the groceries and the grandkids and, you know, stuff like that. Well, same with mindfulness. Here we're at boot camp, we're at training camp, and we're cultivating these qualities of mind, specifically mindfulness in their the accompanying uh, mental factors, so that we can use them in our life. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we use them in our life? Mindfulness is required everywhere. Or we'll just be caught in a stream of thought, of judgments and liking and disliking and fearing and entanglement with all of life's experiences. Someone in the, one of the groups yesterday, they was talking about the experience of driving and how quickly I mean, quickly, the mind gets jerked around by somebody who cuts you off or doesn't use their blinker or toots their horn inappropriately or whatever. And it's like, we lose our mind. We lose our mind. We're out of our mind and somebody takes it and jerks it around. And we get upset. We get impatient. We get frustrated. We get angry. You know, we let others steal our mind. That's being out of your mind, right? You're not aware. You can't control it. When we see that, we realize, wow, whose mind is it that I'm living with? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you know, anybody that wants to can can, you know, kind of jerk. You know, it's like we're a puppet on a string if we're not careful. That's why mindfulness is essential for, you know, autonomy and living authenticity authentically, for having a coherent and cohesive sense of self, to be able to sustain uh, the continuity and resolve to accomplish what we need to in life, we have to have mindfulness. A little bit is good. A lot is better, of course. But one of the areas that we, that we use mindfulness is developing these wholesome qualities of mind that I call the contingency plans for the trouble ahead. Now we know, in life, there's going to be some challenges, right? There's no, we're all old enough to know that we're not living in fairyland. You know, there, there's challenges in life. And what is it that we're going to use? What is it we, can we rely on for uh, contingency plans for dealing with the, unex, well, it's expected, but unknown how it's going to appear? You remember the... Uh, I think it was about six or seven years ago now, the earthquake off the coast of northern Japan, the earth goes click, the water goes whoosh, and the nuclear reactors go boom, you know, and suddenly uh, everything that those people owned and acquired throughout their whole life is washed out to sea. And they can't live there anymore for a few hundred years. Those people were living just like we're living. Quite quite happily going along, doing their thing, acquiring the, 
the means for their survival and their life and livelihood with community and possessions and, you know, the security that they can get, you know, just like we do. <coughs> and just like that. Nature says, and boom. So assuming you were one of those who got to the top of the building, you know, took videos of the tide taking all your stuff out to sea, and when it's all settled down, you come down onto the street that's now a little stream, who would you want to see? Who would you want to meet? What kind of person would you hope to uh, meet? Someone who's grounded, compassionate, generous, understanding, honest, energetic, right? Somebody who's going to be, you know, help. Somebody who's going to help, just share, you know, can, can accurately appraise the situation and what's got to be done and willing to contribute all they can to it. What we're really looking at is what kind of heart, what kind of mind is going to be really useful, beneficial, necessary in these inevitable situations of trouble ahead. Patience, generosity, loving kindness, energy, wisdom, resolve, renunciation, truthfulness. These are the paramis. These are the ten wholesome paramis that are the householder's practice of mindfulness that supports the unfolding of liberating wisdom. These are the qualities of mind that the Buddha, that the Bodhisattva, had to perfect in order to become a Buddha. These are the very same qualities that we need to cultivate in order to grow in liberating insight and understanding. And is there ever a day go by when you don't have the opportunity to practice patience or truthfulness or renunciation, just living simply? Every day we're, we're asked to respond to situations where patience would be better than impatience, loving-kindness would be better than aversion, generosity would be better than miserliness. Every day. And so we have these, these practices that require mindfulness. Because if we, if we can't remember to recognize the present moment's experience, we won't recognize that this is an opportunity for generosity, that this is an opportunity for loving-kindness, that this is an opportunity for patience will forget it. And our habits of mind will take over. And so, just in the, just living our everyday life, mindfulness is, well, essential. Having the, you know, ability to remember to recognize, oh, this is a situation that calls for a wholesome state of mind, a wholesome response, rather than a habitual reactivity. Isaiah says, someone who really practices in daily life will know the value of this practice as something that they can't live without. So therefore you should think of your home as a retreat center. After the Buddha's awakening, at age 35, he talked for 45 years. And he gave hundreds of talks, thousands of talks, to all kinds of people. Royalty, beggars, monks, nuns, others, just everybody. He gave all kinds of talks to them. But of all the talks he gave, the talks, the discourse on mindfulness, this that I've been commenting on tonight, is considered the most important. Because it gives you the actual practice for developing the wisdom to free your heart and mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. In closing, I'd like to uh, read a short poem from Trungpa Rinpoche. It's called After Thought. Afterthought. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, 
not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts in the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified and sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.